I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the lead teaching pastor, and I am excited to preach a sermon that I got halfway done this week and rewrote. So here we go, okay? Not exactly how we like to see it roll. Um, Turn in your Bibles to Galatians 5. Or if you have an app on your phone, you can always turn there from that. Um, Listen, if you didn't come with a Bible, you don't own a Bible, we have a large stack of brand new, crisp, unopened white ones sitting right out there on the foyer. You can grab one on your way out. Um, But I'll tell you what, if you want like a really nice Bible, like a leather one, just go to our Lost and Found, right outside the door right there. You can go diving through that. There's some cool Nalgene's in there, a little camp, little canteens and some fleeces. Just grab one. It'll be our gift to you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, Galatians 5. We have been going through the book of Galatians for a few months now. Um, we believe and have a conviction as a church to teach through the Bible, teach through books of the Bible, um, and we kind of find ourselves slipping down the last part of Galatians um, to recap it in three or four sentences. Paul has been staging this massive intervention, right? He's watched these, really a set of beautiful churches that he had a, a heavy hand in planting depart away from the faith, depart away from the gospel, right? He saw a, a set of churches that had a lot of life to them, Um, a lot of freedom that they walked in, and now they started to just kind of drift away from that very important foundation stone that Paul had bled for, he had worked for, and so he's trying to jump back in and remind them. He's trying to come back in and see health reinstalled, but like all interventions, people don't usually think they have a problem, and a lot of times they turn on the rescuer, right? Paul's not a guy with the greatest reputation in this church right now, so he's dealing with that. And you know the whole time he's writing this book of Galatians, this letter of Galatians, he remembers what it used to be like. You know, he rolls into town. Remember, this region of Galatia, there are not a whole lot of Jews there. It's not predominantly a Jewish neighborhood. A lot of pagans, a lot of uh, people who worshiped in cults and worshiped many gods. And he saw by the power of the gospel, a church gathered around the beautiful news of what Jesus has done as he lived, died, and lived again. He saw these churches grow. He probably baptized a lot of them, set elders in, moved on. And in his absence, everything started to come apart. So he's intervening. That's got to be tough. I'm, I'm speaking as a pastor. That would be tough for me with the memories. I mean, this is a church that had cook-offs like we have chili cook-offs. They had parties. Um, they, they loved each other. They did community. They partied. They, they met each other. They married each other. They grew old together. They fought. They made up. They fought. They made up again. They fought some more, and they made up, right? It's a beautiful church, a beautiful people. God had done something beautiful. They're Galatia, but they are us. We're Galatia. I mean, here we are in 2014, and I read this letter, and it reminds me that we look now most likely how they looked whenever they started. Take it quite seriously. I'd say I've I've been in the ministry for about 17 years, so for almost two decades, I've led in different ministries of different shapes and sizes and contexts, and one thing I've seen that is common across all of them is you start to see people, or you see occasionally people get really excited about God. And they start this walk, which is vibrant, and it's just, it just breathes fire. I mean, they're just so excited and passionate, all this hope and potential and deep calling. 
But then over time, they start adding things on to their life. A rule here, a way to self-justify their, their life before God there. And before you know it, they get really tired, really, really tired. And they start just having this joyless servitude to their lives. I think this is what Paul is starting to see. He's starting to see some people that are sagging and hollow and very, very tired. Paul has been contending largely with a church that has grown sideways. I mean, this, this began as a church that they trusted in the story of Jesus Christ, and they trusted in that alone, but then they eventually started sliding away from that vibrancy and started trusting in themselves. Originally, they trusted in a bloody cross and an empty tomb and a satisfied God, but now they're drifting towards a, a version of life where they have to satisfy God because Jesus is no longer satisfying enough. They're trusting in their own works. They're trusting in their own ability to behave a certain way and obey a certain way. So before we even jump into this, I mean, can we just agree as a church not to make a very classic mistake, right? A classic mistake that we, when we hear sermons taught, or we read it in the Bible, or we, we read a book, it's very easy for us to look at it from the outside looking in, right? Almost like you're, you're watching a, a story on TV about an addict being intervened with, you know, like those, those shows called Intervention where, you know, these loving people come in and try to rescue a person that can't see the rocky coastline they're slamming into. It's easy for us to read the Bible as if we're watching an episode of that when the whole time we're the addict and we're not touched by the story. You know, when God inspired Paul to pen Galatians, when God inspired this work, you today, sitting in here, you were not an afterthought. We think that, you know, God wrote something for Galatians, but if, if it happens to benefit people on down the line, you know, in the 21st century, then that's good. Really, it was just for the Galatian church. Really, that's all it was for. Don't make that mistake, friends. This is a, this is a letter for us today. This is a story and a tale for us today. It's a sermon for me today. I know that. Because I think we can also claim that we are free as Christians when in fact the obedience that we have is shame-based. And we do things for God, but it's just so God will not be mad at us anymore. We'll do things so that we can make God approachable. So I think we are a Galatian. I'm a Galatian. So I'd love to just jump into this fifth chapter. Um, so if you have a Bible, we're, listen, we're rocking old school today because our, our video thing is not working. Um, so we did put at least my text number up there. So if you have any questions, text that number. Um, you'll have many opportunities today. I can promise you that. It's a little bit of a different, difficult word. Um, but we're going to read through Galatians 5, 1 through 12. We're going to read through it its entirety. Um, not that we're going to do this every week, but I had fun last week where I started it off and then you guys read aloud with me and read to me. How does that sound? Can we do that again? Can you try to do a better job than you did last week? I was really disappointed. It was all off meter. So this is your time. It's time to redeem yourself. Don't disappoint me. Chapter 5, verse 1. Are we ready? All right, let's read some Bible. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm.
All right, that was just sad. <laughs> Can we just ditch that as a church? Are we ready to do that? No, I'm just messing with you. Thank you for doing that. Um, I have read this passage over and over and over and over and over again. And I'm going to have to teach it a little bit differently than I normally do. This passage could spawn six or seven sermons very quickly, very easily. But there are some powerful images that pop off the page, right? They certainly popped off the page for the original readers, the Galatian church. Some of it's lost on us because of the cultural difference and the time difference, all right? So I'd like to look at those images that Paul provokes the listeners to face, because what he's doing is he's describing what it looks like. We're seeing something happen in real time. He's describing what it looks like when people veer and they drift away from Jesus being sufficient in order to satisfy God. And so what they've done is they've changed their actions. They've changed their behavior. They've changed their performance. Because they believe that they can add to where Jesus lacked and satisfy and contribute of their own and justify themselves. That's what we're seeing. And so if I'm just going to jump off into Galatians 5.1, and I, I will tell you, um, this is an upfront. I'm going to spend 80% of my time on this first verse. So don't panic. You will see the Super Bowl today, okay? <laughs> just come. But this first verse is the pinnacle verse of the whole book, okay? If you were to remember one verse in the entire letter of Galatians, this is it. This is the hinge on which the entire epistle swings, okay? So it says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He says yoke. Yoke is a familiar word picture to them. It doesn't engender the same thing in us. A little bit lost on us, right? Um, in fact, I think probably the closest thing I can think of right off the bat that we have in society today are the sleds and football practice, right? You think about it. If you don't know that or you've never seen a football movie or you've never been in football, there are these giant sleds made of solid pig iron with these pads on them. Coaches blow the whistle all over the country. The athletes throw their bodies into it and push the sled down the field, okay? It's the closest thing I can think of. What yokes did is they united draft animals together. They would take various animals and put them together because what that yoke does is it makes the force going forward larger than the sum of the parts. So it was very helpful, right? It was a singular point of force. And what they would do is they would hook plows up to it. They would hook carts up to it. The problem would be if, if they would start putting animals with very differences in their strength, right? So you might have like a like an ox and a donkey, that would be a problem. A horse and a, I don't know, a dog. I just made that up. I'm sure no one did that back then. Um, but if you had animals that had different strengths, what do you have? You've got, you've got things veering, right? You've got, it, you've got this fight and this chaos and this trouble and this damage happening up there. It was never a really good thing. Um, I was in football growing up. Um, and when I say I played football, what I mean to say is I had pads and a helmet and I was on a roster around other football players during practices only, right? <laughs> but I remember the very first day of practice was the very first day I ever hit a sled. And I was still trying to figure out how to walk with the, with the pads on. Everything is so different, you know, with the pads. And I remember lining up. We had this, this drill. These coaches just loved this drill where they had two lines. They'd blow a whistle, and two guys would hit the sled on opposite ends as fast and as hard as they could. The goal was to push the sled in the opposite direction, proving that you were the mightier man, okay? 
And so you don't, want, you don't want the sled to come in your direction. It means you're not pushing your weight. So I'm standing in line, scared to death, because obviously this is not for insecure people, right? And so I start, can't, you know how you do out of the side of your eye? You're counting down the other side of the line to see who's hitting the sled with you? His name was Alan Vaughn. I still remember it, right? It's a tragic moment for me. And he had been held back or failed or whatever, but he was three years older than me, right? And he poured concrete every summer with his dad's construction company. So he's this Paul Bunyan figure among just mere boys out there. He barely fit in his outfit, barely fit in his pads, you know, looked like a college athlete. So the coach blows the whistle and he hit that line so fast. He left the line so fast and hit that sled so fast that he had turned that sled 90 degrees my way into the tables, into the water coolers, right? And it was so fast. It was like a blur that by the time I leaned into it, it was gone. And I landed on my face. So the coaches are screaming, Thomas, you're going to clean all that up. All the other athletes are laughing at me. It was a proud moment, you know? That's a little bit. That's partially what is going on when God says to us in 2 Corinthians, don't unequally yoke yourself with anybody. Do you understand the concept? Unlevel partnerships. Now he's talking about something a little bit different. But for our purposes today, the concept is sound. If you're in an unlevel partnership, you will be subservient and enslaved to a stronger force. That's what Paul is talking about right here. In this case, in Paul's case, whenever we give up our freedoms, we give away the fact that Jesus' work for us was enough, then we put a yoke on that we used to wear. And now Jesus' work is not sufficient for us. Now we have to work for us. Whenever we give away the freedom... And we abandon the fact that Jesus was the, the only thing that can satisfy God. Then we put a yoke on ourselves and we say, now I must satisfy God. When we abandon the freedom and the truth that Jesus worked perfectly, then we put a yoke on our own shoulders that say what? Now I must work perfectly. Now that's what we used to wear. That used to be a yoke of slavery. People in Christ don't wear that yoke anymore. Except in cases like this. You know, Martin Luther would talk about this concept with draft animals. He said it was always interesting. You watch them, and they battle each other with this yoke on. One's pulling while the other one's kind of being stubborn. And it's always chaos. That yoke's always beating them up. And it, it, it just looks clumsy and clunky. And you could tell how tiring it is on these animals. How, how much toil and joylessness there is in the whole thing. They take the yokes off in the evening. The animals eat on the side of the road. And then this whole cycle repeats until it doesn't anymore because they had to slaughter the ox. He says it's remarkable that that's how we are as Christians many times. And I concur. Tirelessly laboring, joyless servitude. Listen, it's, it's joyless and frustrating to be working for God just so he likes you. Just so he's not mad at you. Just so he doesn't destroy you. You never know when you're all right, do you? You never know when you're cool with God. You, you never know when he's approachable. It's just tiring. It's exhausting. It's joyless. Whenever our sole motivation for acting or doing or behaving or obeying is just so the paddle doesn't whoop us. That's a hard way to live, isn't it? Some of you have had parents like that growing up. Some of you are in marriages like that now, and that's a totally different sermon. But how is it? How are you enjoying that? How has that been? Was that, has that been a blast? 
where you serve each other and you labor just so you don't eat each other and destroy each other? Man, but Paul says it is for freedom that he has set us free. It is for, and it, and it sounds enigmatic, right? It is for freedom that he has set us free. But what he's talking about is a clean conscience, a deep breath, a sound night's sleep, where you know that there is no dark cloud of wrath and judgment and punishment following you over your head, informing your every single decision. That's a different way of living. You are happy and free. Listen, you are free to enjoy your king. And I know we spent a lot of time talking about enjoying Jesus last week, and I'm not going to double dip. I'm not going to go back into that right now. I don't have time. But let me just say this. You are free. You are free to enjoy God. That is a freedom that he's given us. You're free. Free from the whispering threats. Free from the, the idea that you are a big disappointment to God. And he just tolerates you as he loves everyone around you. You're free from that. You're free. Now, what I can't say that about is our behavior modification, our sin management. That never tells us we're free, does it? That never tells us we're all right. That never tells us that we're cool. Performance never tells us that we're satisfying before God. I mean, all that does is it tells us we're condemned under the weight of not pulling it off, not getting it done that week. So what do we do? We always run diagnostics on ourselves to see if, is this a day that God is happy with me? Is he approachable today? Every week. How did I do this week? Can I approach God this week? Is he going to take something away from me this week? Is he mad at me this week? Is he going to punish me this week? So this freedom that Paul is talking about is a freedom to look over, or not, it's a freedom not to look over your shoulders. It's a freedom to just relax to know that this giant paddle is not going to come from heaven and beat you to death. That is, that is a freedom indeed, is it not? It, hear me, it will alter the way that you do Christianity, do life, love God, enjoy Jesus, and glorify him forever. It will, it will alter that, a free conscience. That's why Paul is nailing it. That's why he is so emphatic and intense about this. This is freedom. And listen, I cannot promise everyone in this room today that God wants you to be wealthy. Can we just say that? I, can prom- I, I cannot promise that God has it in his will for everyone in here to have a bunch of best friends or to always be healthy. But one thing I can promise, and you can take to the bank today, is that he does want you as a child of God to be free. Free to enjoy him, free to love him, free to engage him. And what is our proof of this? Our proof is that Jesus, man, I never get tired of this. Jesus lived in such a way and in such a manner as to totally, literally, replace mankind's way and manner of living, even though it would be within our manner of living and our way to murder him, to put him up on the cross. And why would God be an architect of something like that? So that he could speedily and joyfully call you family. (laughs) Think about that. Peter's talking in the book of Acts, and he says, listen, it's by your murderous hands. By your hands, he says, that are murderous, that we grab Jesus, mishandle him, torture him, and then hang him up there, hang him on a tree as a cursed object before all creation. It is by our hands that we do that. Why? Why? So that he can adopt us into family. That's a scandalous gospel, isn't it? That's a scandalous gospel. You know, I was reading Matthew this week, 
My son came in right when I was finishing, and I pointed this out to him in the Bible. It's noteworthy. I was reading about the, the time in the crucifixion, in Matthew's account of the crucifixion, when they hung Christ up between two villains, two criminals. Now it says distinctly in plural form that they both were reaming him. They both were ripping him and casting aspersions and cursing him and mocking him. Both thieves were doing that, both villains. But we're more familiar with the Luke version of the story, right? The book of Luke, which is what? One of them gets saved. One of them gets radically saved and the other one does not. Well, which one is right? Think about it. Which one is correct? They both are. What it shows is the speedy reversal that happens in a rebellious heart. It shows that it is nothing less than God's power that could come in and take a murderous rebel and flip his heart. Listen, it was in his last few moments that this man changed God's. How many times do you think he breathed after Jesus spoke to him? I mean, he's up on the cross. They're all looking at each other. How much longer do you think it all went? Minutes? I don't know. I'm thinking minutes. I'm not thinking hours, folks. He was breathing his last breaths. He was breathing his last. And he, in his last breaths, went from cursing Jesus to worshiping the king of creation. That is scandalous. That is amazing to me. Think about how many, how many times do you think his heart beat? This, this criminal, this villain. I don't know, a few more minutes maybe? But it was in those last heartbeats that this heart of stone was pulled out, a heart of flesh was put in. He could see the depth of his sin. He could see just the abundance of God's grace. He gets radically born again right on that cross, right then. That happened in the last few beats of this man's life. And I tell you what, when I read that story, when I read the story, the first thing I think is, and I'm being totally honest, what a wasted life. What a wasted life. <laughs> I mean, wow, bro, what were you saved for like four minutes? You know? 180 seconds? I mean, what good could you have done for God in 180 seconds? What a waste. But you know what? God gladly will take a wasted life and he'll bring his best up and trade it with, joyfully. You think your life is wasted? <laughs> this guy only had a few minutes to be a Christian. What a wasted life. God gladly took it. God gladly took it and gave him his best. That's scandalous. That's the gospel. That's how fast God will trade lives spent. You know, gospel, it's a word we say a lot here. It's a word that's being said more and more and more. There's a little bit, at least in the Western world, a little bit of a neo-reformation. Some of you are like, hey, this whole reformed theology thing, I'm hearing words like gospel and grace and sovereignty and providence. I'm hearing those things kind of anew. You're not alone. A lot of the country is. There are more churches being planted with a gospel centrality to it than probably in most other times in history. We're definitely a blip on the radar right now. So the word gospel is being used and stuck and attached to everything. And because it's been used and washed and rewashed, it's starting to fade because it's being attached to things that aren't the gospel at all. Right? Things that aren't the gospel. But I have to say... And I've been saying all of this stuff to get to this point. <laughs> this is what I've been wanting to get to with you today. If the gospel, the story of a living, dying, and living again God, for your benefit, at, at God's dear cost, 
If that story does not wreck your soul, you have either slipped towards being a Galatian or you were totally lost and very far from God. Make no mistake. If the gospel has become just rote and familiar and it doesn't throw you to your knees and it doesn't just provoke worship from that inner man, the visceral parts of you, if it doesn't just grab you still, then you don't get it. Maybe you've never gotten it. Maybe you've just added enough to your life like the Galatians did to where you're so busy finding sufficiency in your own life that that's no longer very important to you. You know, but here's the punchline. You were the thief on the cross. You were that villain with a wasted life, not expecting Jesus to come. You were a villain undeserving of anything that could come your way. You're the soldier at the foot of the cross gambling in total unbelief. Inhumane. You are the onlookers. I'm the onlooker. Cursing at him, laughing at him, mocking, using it as entertainment. We are the Judas. Trusting in ourselves and doomed. That's who we are in this story. And what does he do for all of our evil contribution? For all of our wicked investment, what does he do? He saves us. (laughs) That's the gospel, folks. He saves us. All of our wicked wickedness and he saves us think about it he carefully and i mean carefully measured out all of your sins he knows every single one you've done you've thought about doing the ones you've done in your sleep right because you're not sinners because you sin you sin because you are sinners the very core of your being is sin and he has measured out every single one from the time you came out of your mama to the time you die And then he has carefully scheduled a payment to be made on the back of a noble, masculine, victorious, valiant king. We are the beneficiaries. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And what do we do to get this? Nothing. Boy, I hope you hear me. I hope you hear this. We didn't do a thing. We did not do, contribute a thing. And I know what some of you immediately go to in your minds, and I've done it too, right? But Luke, I did. I made decisions. I researched it out. You know? I said words. I did contribute. And I know what you're talking about. Luke, I sat there in the chair. The preacher preached. He said, everyone bow their heads. Everyone bow their heads. Everyone raise a hand. Of course, you always raise one eye too, don't you? Because if you're the only one doing this, you put it back down real quick. Raise your hand. Stand up and come down so everyone stands up, right? And they kind of, excuse me, excuse me, all the way to the aisle. And then they walk down and there's some sweaty-handed guy down here with the name tag on. And he's, he asks you some awkward questions because he doesn't know you, right? And then he goes, well, repeat after me. He says a prayer. You repeat after him and you become a Christian. So Luke, I did do things. I did make decisions. I did say words, right? Listen, here's the truth. You were saved before you got out of that seat. You didn't do a thing. Before you even raised your hand, God invaded your space and regenerated your heart, else you wouldn't have been able to even see that you were a sinner. You wouldn't have even been able to raise your hand or even be able to hunger after grace. That happened before you even got up out of your seat. Let me crank it up another notch for you on that, right? You didn't even have to go down and pray the sinner's prayer with a counselor or a pastor to do it. I know that's bad. I know you're not supposed to say that in the South, but hear me again, and I'll say it more clearly. 
You did not even have to come down and pray with a professional to become a Christian. You were a Christian when God decided you would be a Christian in your seat. Let me crank it up another notch, okay? There is nothing salvific, nothing special, nothing that gives you salvation in a sinner's prayer. You didn't even have to pray at all. Luke, that sounds heretical. Listen, praying certain words in a certain order does not get us Jesus. That gets you witchcraft. (laughs) If you can say certain words in a certain way, especially repeated by someone else, and if a mantra gets you something magical, well, that's not Christianity at all. The whole thing about Christianity is we bring nothing to the table, and he brings everything. If you pray, pray. I love prayer. Come down and pray. We'll celebrate that you just got saved. But that's not going to get you. There is nothing holy about this aged, faded patch of carpet down here. Nothing holy about it. I know that's going to be... Listen, text the number on the screen, okay? you got questions. But I will say, if you're a Christian, it's because God birthed you into a new kingdom. Listen, Jesus birthed you into the kingdom. You didn't birth yourself. Jesus said all the right words. You didn't say all the right words. You didn't make all the right decisions. Jesus made all the right decisions. We're so passive. We're passive in the whole process. We brought nothing to the table. He brought us best. The story of the gospel, the best story of your life and all of humanity, is that we step into this thing as dirty, grimy, scandalous villains, and he comes into it as a sacrificial, atoning king, and he trades lives with us where we benefit. Gospel. You can't fade that. You can't fade that. Listen, if this gospel does not wreck your soul, oh, if this gospel does not wreck your soul, I fear for you today. I fear for you because you've either become a Galatian or you've started veering already. Because you're so busy being a hero by doing things that you forgot that there was one. Or you're radically lost and you are headed straight. I mean, when I say you're straight, you're roaming your canoe in the wrong direction. And I pray that God would rescue you today. It's got to wreck us. This is why Paul gets so agitated. And you can tell I'm agitated. This is why Paul gets so agitated when Christianity becomes about us heroic. Well, I'm going to add a circumcision, a special diet. I'm going to throw a couple festivals. I'm going to sprinkle those into my calendar. I'm going to wear a suit to church. I'm going to tuck my shirt in. I'm not going to smoke cigarettes. I'm not going to drink beer. I'm not, I'm not, we start putting all these things on there so that God will do something. And who's the hero in that? We're the hero. We left Jesus in the dust because he's not really satisfying God. I need to satisfy God, right? Now listen, if you don't want to drink beer, don't drink beer. If you don't want to take a Sabbath, don't take a Sabbath. If you want to smoke a cigarette, Smoke a cigarette, don't smoke a cigarette, don't homeschool your kids. Whatever you do or do not do, do it to the glory of God. Don't do it so you could be glorious, right? Whatever you do or do not do, do it to the glory of God. Don't do it so that you could be glorious inside of God's story. God is glorious. So yes, we are all about acting. You can go to our website. One of our values says that we're an active church. We believe in being active, active in the city, active in each other's lives. We believe it. So we want to act. We're not against just acting. We like to obey. <laughs> we're all we're pro-obedience here, right? We love to behave. But we do those things because of the soul-wrecking gospel. Not so that God might do or will do something for us later on down 
the road. I know I sound like a broken record because we preach about this every single week, but this is what Paul is dealing with today. It's what I'm going to deal with. Our gospel, and it's so beautiful, the story doesn't even stop. The gospel is much more beautiful than that because it doesn't just save us, it sustains us. We grow. He justifies us before God's eyes, and then he starts to clean us, and we look a little bit more like Jesus every day. Even though the Bible says our outer parts start wasting away, everybody over the age of 27 say amen. If you're under the age of 27, don't even act like you know. You don't. Our outer parts, they start drooping, sagging, getting nearsighted, limping, aching, right? But inside, we we become more and more like Jesus. This is growth. Now, it says for freedom that we have been set free, right? Doesn't it feel like God is taking freedoms away and not giving it? That's where the wrestling match is in growth. It's tough. I got to move on. My goodness. Okay, but I am almost done. I did give you that forewarning. Verse 2. Look. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed, hear this, big sentence, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. You have fallen away from grace. Can we talk about that for a second? Is it possible to lose your salvation? This is what's going on. Right? He's talking about something that have led people to believe. Now listen, there are two camps on this. I'm going to go ahead and just give you both. The camp that we do not espouse is that yes, you can lose your salvation. All you have to do in order for that to work is to backslide far enough, fast enough that you slide right out of God's strong, powerful hands. Right? You could do that. And what this breeds and renders over time is a Christian who really hunts down altar calls and rededication moments. Any of you ever been there? Repeated trips to the altar. Just in case the last one didn't take. Just in case God is not strong enough. Or maybe just to top the fuel tank off, right? Maybe this is the time that I stop sinning. I'm going to rededicate. I'm going to rededicate. This is what it does. It's a fear that we could lose our salvation. The second school, which we do believe in, is that if you are truly born again, you cannot lose your salvation. And I don't teach that just so you feel better inside. We do it because if God's gift to us had nothing to do with our actions, then our actions cannot dissolve God's promises. Okay? That's why we believe that. So it's not just a scandalous gospel. It's not just a saving gospel. It's not just a sustaining gospel. It's a persevering gospel. It's a persevering gospel. We believe in once saved, always saved, if you're saved. If you're saved. And why do I qualify that? Because Paul's dealing with a people here where the question is not so much whether the Galatians have lost their salvation, it's whether they ever even had it. That's what he's talking about. He's basically saying, hey guys, if you were justified and find your justification in doing spiritual push-ups in front of everybody, if that's how you do it, you're having to put down Jesus to pick up self. Only one's going to save you. You're putting down grace to pick up tireless labor. And you have drifted away from the only thing that can save you. The only thing that can save you. So questions come around now when I talk to people about this one-on-one. Well then Luke, how did Paul know whether they lost their salvation, never had their salvation, was How did he know? He didn't. He didn't. I don't know about you either. Some of you I'd, I'd put paychecks on for sure, you know. But do we really know? Right? Do you really know? 
Here's another question. But Luke, what about those people? And we all know this, this person. What about those people that start life off as a Christian? Right? That start life off as a Christian and they do really well. They go to Sunday school. Anytime the doors are open, they give a lot of money. They start Bible studies. They go with church plants. What happens when they just leave everything and they become atheistic? They become atheistic. Or, or, or maybe they just start adding so much stuff to their life that Jesus is so far back on the road that you don't have any. What if that's the case? Did they lose their salvation? My answer would be no, they never had it. And that goes for me too. If in 20 or 30 years I step from this pulpit and I go live a depraved lifestyle and I breathe my last that way and never find myself as a prodigal son coming back to God, then you can know for sure that this day that I'm preaching to you, I was a dead man preaching. Right? So Luke, can we know that we're saved? Yes, you can. The Holy Spirit... He teaches you. He reaffirms it in your life. He counsels you on your salvation. But the Bible does say to work through it with fear and trembling. And he doesn't say that because he just wanted to put more words on the paper. Right? Again, does the gospel wreck you? Does it wreck your soul? Man, I have seen people. I have seen people that I have loved that have preached the gospel publicly, led ministries, step away from the pulpit and die a depraved reprobate. I've seen it in my short life. I've seen it. Was that person saved? I don't know that they ever were. I don't know that they ever were. Does this scare you? Does this scare you? Listen, this is what it says in 1 John 2. It's not going to be on the screen. This is John talking when he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. And I know immediately this frightens some of you, and I know immediately a lot of you are doing assessments on your life and where you're at, right? You're doing that diagnostic. Good. Good. I'm not talking you away from the ledge. And I will say, this is why, this, this mood, this is why The altar call and rededications have gotten so many reps on the playlist in the church over the last 50 and 60 years. Because it's not hard for me at this point, if I wanted to manipulate an audience, to convince you that because of your actions this week, whatever you guys found yourself doing, that you forfeited your salvation. But hey, it's for you to have again if you want. We've got volunteers down here. You could just come in and pray with them and you can rededicate your life. You can get saved you guys would rush down here. If I could make you guys feel that you could come down and pray a prayer that will get you special favor from God, you would rush down here. How do I know? Because I did it several times. I did it. What this does is it bases this phenomenon, it bases your salvation off of what you did that week, not off of what Jesus has done in general. Listen, I know guys who have prayed the sinner's prayer dozens of times, even with me, even to the point where I'm like, bro, you're saved, seriously. I mean, we'll pray about anything. If you want to pray, I like praying, but you're saved. I mean, you're saved, dude. You've been saved for like a while. You're saved. I know, but just in case, just in case, what is he doing? What, what happens when he's doing that? He's doing it because he doesn't feel that Jesus' work was sufficient. He's got to keep saying things correctly, acting correctly, doing correctly so he can make sure That's what's going on. If God has rescued you, He will preserve you, and not even you can crawl out of His grasp for all of your trying. This is what Paul says in Romans. He says, For He's sure that death, life, 
angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything else in all of creation, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Listen, if angels can't separate you from the love of God, and supernatural powers cannot separate you from the love of God, and anything in creation cannot separate you from the love of God, might I suggest that your addict or your, your, your predilection to sit, that will not separate you from God. It won't. You're safe. Not because of your works, because of God's work, if you're saved. If you're saved. Okay? i, mean, I got to move on, sorry. Verse 5. We're actually cruising in. We're almost done, believe it or not. Verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait. See, he doesn't say work there. He says wait. He doesn't say work. He says wait. We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But only faith working through love. Now here's a big sentence, power sentence. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, then why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. He says, you've been running so well. Who hindered you? The language for hinder in that. It's half the time translated hinder, the original word. The other half, it's, it's translated cut in on you, which is what some of your Bibles read. I know NIV, I think, says it. There are other Bible versions that say cut in. I actually prefer that version, cut in. The reason I like it, and it's about 50-50 depending on which Bible you pick up, is because that's a running term. Paul is always using athletic analogies. He either was an athlete or he was a, an, a, just a sports dork sports center guy, but he loved talking in terms of athletics. This is a running term, right? So I've coached um, runners for a combined seven or eight years in mostly short track or short course running. And what's true in short course running, right, is that cutting in on somebody is a valid tactic and it's something that is as old as the hills. It's not some recent technology. But whenever a runner wants to run, the preferable thing is to have what's called clean road in front of you, right? Because if you've got this bubble This buffer in front of you, you get to decide where you put your feet, how often you put them down, what your arms look like, your breathing is regulated, there's nothing causing a panic. You have clean road, right? But if someone cuts into your bubble and they jump right in front of you, then you start, you have to put distance on them. You've got to create a new bubble, right? Because in your feet, you start coming apart, your breathing starts getting real erratic, everything starts looking sloppy. And what ends up happening always is you start running their race and not yours. Whenever I would coach runners in races, I would always say, this is a place where you cut in. That's a place where you cut in. This is a place where you cannot be cut in on. It's a common racing term. I think this is what Paul is talking about. I think what he's saying, just with the yoke terminology of, hey, you're putting on a yoke where you're being drug around and subservient to a stronger force, I think he's saying something like, you guys had clean road in front of you. What happened? You were breathing well. Your form was crisp. You were saying gospel correctly. You had community happen. Mission was going out. Pagans were getting saved. Who cut in on you? Now your form's all sloppy. You look like a lawn chair all coming apart. Your breathing's all over the place. You're adding things. Festivals. I mean, I guess if you want, you know. I mean, you've got all these rules all of a sudden. Who cut in on you? 
Because just like the yoke, you don't have clean road. Now you're running their race. You're plowing their field. Subservient and enslaved to them. He's saying, who cut you off? I didn't cut you off. If I cut you off, they wouldn't be persecuting me. God didn't cut you off, he says. Let me ask you, what is cut in on you? What has interrupted your trust in God? What has gotten you so trigger happy to want to rededicate your life? Have you ever really done an autopsy on that? What's going on on your heart? Where do you not believe the good news so much that you have to make your own news good? Think about that. And then I'll finish with this last verse. Verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Hmm. Listen, it means what it says. Okay? I've read a lot of commentators here that have done as good a job as they can to take the spank and the whooping out of that verse. But it is there. He really means that as they're busy circumcising each other in order to please God, that their hand slips and they finish the job. That sounds pretty crass. Doesn't sound very pastoral, does it? I mean, if I said that, I'd be in big trouble. I might get fired. I would get fired. But I've only got like one or two of those in me a year before I get in trouble, right? And I said fart a few times last week, so I'm already down one week. I did enjoy that, though. Not farting, but talking about farting. (laughs) This is what Paul is saying. In the region of Galatia, right? Remember, it's a pagan culture, not Jewish culture. There were cults everywhere. One of these cults, actually the predominant cult in that area, they worshipped a god named Sybil. And the worshipers, the male worshipers that worshipped that, annually they had a tradition where they would emasculate themselves. It's not a coincidence. These Galatians knew what Paul was talking about. He's comparing the two. He's saying, hey, these Jewish teachers that are teaching you to add all this junk on your life, right? they're just as bad as the cult leaders that you used to follow. They're both doing the same thing, which is with different words. They're teaching you Jesus isn't sufficient. They're saying you could do things to please God. They're saying you could build up your own justification. They're the exact same thing. You've escaped one bad religion just to jump right in another one. Who's caught in on you? What are you yoked into? So, let me just finish with this. I told you it was a different passage. Let me just finish this. And I'm asking this question to everyone in the room. And I know I have various different people, postures, situations, seasons of life. Right? But I'm going to ask the same question. Does the gospel of Jesus Christ wreck your soul? People who are bored with the gospel are busy about building their own. Little rule of thumb. Does the gospel turn your insides and draw worship out of you? Does it put you on your face before God? And what, what does the gospel do to you? Is it just familiar to where it doesn't have no punch anymore? Are you adding additives that are just detracting from what Christ has done? What are you doing? When the gospel amazes you, you will relax under Jesus' work. His yoke is easier, is it not? He says, come, all of you who are are, are in hard labor. Come, all of you who are weary. Was he talking to tired people? He's talking to religious people. Come all, right? 
And there is a freedom for us, folks.